2005, excavations in the reported hometown of Goliath, the Philistine city of Gath, uh, and a particular modern tell. Again, this sort of tells of these these hillocks, these mounds where ancient cities uh, are, were are. Uh, reveals a Semitic inscription dating to the 10th, 9th centuries BC, bearing an Indo-European name that resembles Goliath. Uh, head of excavations, uh, Aaron Meyer, uh, says of this inscription, it shows us that David and Goliath's story reflects the cultural reality of the time. So it's not saying, this pot belonged to Goliath, the giant, who, you know, it doesn't, <laughs> but it's like, Okay, the, the Bible is accurately reflecting the kind of names that people had in this very specific location at that specific time. Uh, a Davidic state boule, again, small thing, size of a coin kind of impression. Um, uh, this this uh, particular uh, anthropologist um, saying our preliminary results indicate that this particular site they've dug up is integrated into a political entity, entity that's typified by elite activities, suggesting that a state was already being formed in the 10th century BC. So some people who had said, okay, there wasn't a King David, have been forced to admit that there was a King David by the Tel Dan Stele, etc. So, but then said, but he was just a minor tribal chief, it was just a little thing. The Bible is looking at its past history through rose-tinted uh, glasses when it said it was this great, you know, the, 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 the great golden age of Israel, the great state of, of David and so on. And they're saying here is, a, here is a sign that there is a sort of political entity with a wide reach engaged in the sort of activities that states engage in. Uh, a state was already being formed in the 10th century. These boule uh, date to the 10th century and lends general support to the historical veracity of David and Solomon as recorded in the, the Hebrew biblical text, I that they had these big sort of state apparatus kind of states and weren't just little local chieftains. 2018, uh, this discovery at Tel Eaton, uh, believed to be the biblical site of Eglon, uh, yielded further proof of the biblical account of David's kingdom. Um, it's on the southeastern edge of ancient Israel's territory, a construction dating to the period of King David uh, a, a construction unique of a type unique to Israel, the archaeology, uh, the, the architecture's type, uh, the four-roomed house, a sort of stereotypical. Uh, discoveries from this outpost city fit the biblical description of a, a continually expanding kingdom during the reign of King David. Uh, Elliot Nezar is one of the leading uh, Israeli archaeologists today. Of course, uh, David's son uh, Solomon, who've been mentioning uh, in the second half of that video there. Uh, here's another picture of Solomon's wall, dug up in 2010. Uh, King Solomon's Edomite copper mines. This is uh, an interpretation of this discovery from 2013, so fairly recently. Uh, this copper mine was considered to be a late Bronze Age site related to the New Kingdom of Egypt in the 13th and early 12th centuries BC. Then University of Tel Aviv archaeologist Ben Yosef uh, did a high precision radiocarbon dating of the donkey dung found at this site, as well as other textiles and organic material. Donkey dung? <laughs> yes, slash R30. Uh, <coughs> uh, and showed that the mining camps 
uh, heyday of operation was during the 10th century BC. Uh, so, um, the era uh, of, of David and Solomon. Uh, so we have this copper mine working in the right era. Uh, Thomas Levy of the University of California, San Diego says this research represents uh, a, a confluence, a fitting between the archaeological and scientific data and the Bible. This site contains a hundred buildings including a fortress in the middle of 24 acres of land covered in, in black slag from the mining operation. Uh, archaeologist Ben Yosef says that if the Bible's claim that David brought the Edomites to heal is accurate, there's a serious possibility that Jerusalem got its wealth from taxing these mining operations, which had come under their auspices. Um, Solomon uh, reportedly embarked on a building campaign that included the first temple. Elliot Nazar was mentioning that, uh, look at 1 Kings 7. And many of the implements used in worship in the temple were made of bronze. And bronze requires copper to form that, the alloy. So, you know, King Solomon's Mines, the famous Ryder Haggard adventure storybook and all of that. But this goes back to uh, the wealth of the kingdom being founded on being in control of these copper mines, used for articles in the temple, that all kind of ties together now that they've redated that site. So the, the area of the two kingdoms when Judah and Israel had split from each other uh, under their own uh, um, uh, dynasties. And down here in the Neo-Assyrian Neo uh, Empire, we have uh, the Assyrian ruler Shalamanser III, in uh, the 800s BC. And here we have, which you will see later today in the British Museum, I just love the name of this, the Black Obelisk of Shalamansa III. Dun, dun, dun. It's great. He was king of Assyria in the 9th century BC. Great big uh, thing. Here's a, a, a close-up. Uh, this uh, picture's on it. There's a picture, a panel on it that might feature the earliest ancient depiction of a biblical figure. Uh, Jehu, king of Israel from the 9th century BC, mentioned in 2 Kings 9 to 10, depicted here as, as uh, giving uh, tribute to Shalomansa. He's bowing down in front of Shalomansa. Let's give you a better picture here. So in the green circle, here's quite possibly Jehu, or maybe his representative. You've got a, above him the, the star symbol on the right, which reminds me of the Star of David. On the left, you've got a symbol above the, the seated uh, emperor, Shalamansa. And the, the, the text on the stele says, The tribute of Jehu, son of Omri, I received from him silver, gold, a golden bowl, a golden vase with a pointed bottom, golden tumblers, golden brackets, tin, and a staff for a king and spears. This was the, the tribute uh, that he gave. And there is Jehu, uh, mentioned in about 840 to 815 uh, BC in the Two Kingdom period. So there we have maybe a biblical portrait, certainly a, a, a scriptural uh, mention uh, of that particular king at that particular time uh, doing what the Bible said he was doing. So now we're beginning to move much more from being able to say 
the cultural background reflected in, in the biblical text fits with what we can find out about the culture. And we're getting to that stage where we're beginning to say, here's a thing at a specific time and date that relates to a particular person. The Bible says a particular person existed here and then. The archaeology says that particular person existed here and then. Um, because we've got more data surviving, because we're closer to us now. So it's not surprising that more specific stuff has also survived until now, yeah? Now, when Sargon II, king of Assyria, died in 705 BC, various subject states tried to throw off their subservience to him. Hezekiah, king of Judah, stopped paying tribute and entered into uh, an agreement with Egypt. In 307, King Sennacherib, Sargon's son, began a campaign to, to squash this opposition to Assyrian rule, and Hezekiah expected the Egyptians to come to his aid. They did not. And you will read various biblical prophecies about the prophets at the time saying, you know, e Egypt is a reed, don't lean on Egypt. You can't trust them as far as you can throw them, mate. So, this is the Old Testament period of Hezekiah, around the time of, of Isaiah and Sennacherib in the Assyrian Sargon II and Sennacherib period there, right at the end of the Two Kingdoms period. 2 Kings 18, Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned 29 years and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and didn't serve him. And here we have a seal impression from Hezekiah. This seal says, belonging to Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah. So the sort of thing, again, that like uh, we used to make a drip wax onto a letter and put a seal signet ring seal into it to say, you know, this officially comes from this person. Here they would make impressions on clay and then the clay would dry with the impression on it, uh, on goods or whatever. Hezekiah's tunnel. And, and there's a few still photos. So in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's bit, for the sake of David my servant, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death some 5,180, better translation, men of the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there, says the Bible. But we have various bits of archaeology relating to this. First of all, very recent find, 2018, dug up by uh, Elliot Nisa, uh, we were looking at earlier. Uh, at the uh, uh, near the bakery that she was excavating, uh, which uh, she interprets that the first word is is squished, um, but it says to Isaiah, uh, uh, belonging to Isaiah the prof prophet, very probably, uh, just south of the Temple Mount, um, and they discover this relating to Isaiah, who we prophesy at the time. Um, Just a bit to go back there. Yeah. Belonging to Isaiah, N, V, Y. You know, in many languages, V and B are the same. Y and I are the same. So, Nabi is the name of prophet. Prophet, mm. yeah. So, Isaiah, and this could be, you know, because you may use letters 
mm. without our distinctions. Mm. Thank you. So that's a really intriguing uh, recent find, and not only what's written on it, but also where it was found and the kind of date, in terms of dating the sort of archaeological level that it was found at as well, uh, fits uh, the, the picture of it being uh, Isaiah's described in the Bible. We also have uh, what's called Sennacherib's prism, a cuneiform account from Sennacherib's side of what went on. So we can relate the biblical account to the Sennacherib's own account of what went on. And here's what Sennacherib says about what went on. As for Hezekiah the Judite, who did not submit to my yoke, 46 of his strong-walled cities, as well as the small towns in their area, which were without number, by levelling with battering rams and by bringing up siege engines and by attacking and storming on foot by mines, tunnels and breaches, I besieged and took them. Uh, the king Hezekiah himself, like a caged bird, I shut up in Jerusalem, his royal city. I threw up earthworks against him. Now, that, that's not a siege ramp. Remember, Isaiah said there won't be a siege ramp. This is like I'm laying siege. I'm putting up siege works around you to stop people escaping. Uh, earthworks. The one coming out of the city gate, I turned back to his misery, right? His cities, which I had despoiled, going back to the earlier mention, I cut off from his land, and to so-and-so king of Ashod, and so-and-so king of Adron, and so I gave them. So what does he not say? He does not say, and I conquered Jerusalem and gave it to king so-and-so. He just says, yeah, I, I surrounded Jerusalem, walled up the king in his own city, and then I went home. Because, of course, you, you don't record your defeats on your official propaganda. <laughs> How interestingly those two accounts from inside and outside the Bible fit together. The Assyrian assault ramp in the defences at Lachish, which you can see here, the, the, the ramp, there we go, uh, on that picture there, um, and at Lachish we found like various artefacts of arrows and, and slingshots and things. Um, there is no evidence that Sennacherib laid siege to Jerusalem. Here in the British Museum you can see artefacts from the siege of Lachish. Spearheads and arrowheads and the stones that they threw with the slings and so on. Don't have that at Jerusalem. And it is interesting to note that the Greek historian Herodotus in the 5th century BC writes about the destruction of Sennacherib's army and what he calls the entrance to Egypt, remembering where Israel is on the map. And he says that a plague of field mice chewed up the, the Assyrians' leather bowstrings and their quivers and their shield straps so that they couldn't fight anymore and distributes this uh, destruction of their fighting effectivity uh, to divine intervention. Um, so again, interesting, I mean, the, the Bible says, you know, the angel of the Lord went out and killed a lot of Assyrians and then they went home. This Greek historian from quite a lot uh, later, sort of 500 years later, is saying, yes, Nerokarov's army was destroyed by divine intervention and it was mice chewed up all their stuff. 
you know, who's in a better position to know what, what happened in terms of timing, depending on when you, you date the biblical texts. But he is at least saying, yeah, Sennacherib's army, uh, something, something odd that we attribute to divine intervention uh, kind of happened there. So the, we can say this, the extra biblical evidence shows, if we compare this to the prophecies of Isaiah, that unlike Lachish, if we use that as a sort of uh, um, test case, uh, Sennacherib didn't attack Jerusalem. As far as we can tell, no ramp or shooting of arrows happened against Jerusalem. Sennacherib didn't take Jerusalem. The Assyrian army was suddenly rendered impotent, possibly without human intervention. And Sennacherib returned to Nineveh and he didn't return to finish the job, as he had already once before. He, he was coming and then he went to deal with Tanaka and said, don't think I'm letting you off, I'll be back. I'm coming back specifically to get you. <laughs> and then he doesn't. So uh, Judah, Elaine, Isaiah, etc. are still in that, that period. Here, here is a clay seal found in the ashes of a house burnt down when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the next empire, conquered Jerusalem in the 6th century BC. And it bears the words, belonging to Mathan Melech, servant of the king. This distinctive name is found in the Old Testament story of King Josiah of Judah. King Josiah was a reformer who removed the symbols of pagan worship from Jerusalem in two kings. Uh, now it's not possible to be certain that the name on the seal refers to the same person. But the description of Nathan Melech as the official servant of the king is a match. And the location and the timing are matches. Uh, the Babylon siege of Jerusalem, and so the destruction of the house in which this seal was found, took place several decades after the, the, the reign of Josiah. Jeremiah. Here is uh, another one of those wonderful seal impressions, because we get names and things. The seal of uh, belonging to Barak, uh, the, the, the son of uh, Barak, this uh, scribe, Jeremiah. Um, prophesied about the, the captivity in Babylon um, and his messages were told in Jeremiah 36 were recorded by a man named Barak son of Neriah and here we have a, a seal belonging to Barak the son of squish can't read it but yeah you know that's very probably this belonged to Jeremiah the prophet's scribe who wrote stuff down for him um, cuneiform tablet uh, with Babylonian chronicles talking about Nebuchadnezzar's army doing various things, talks about besieging Jerusalem and capturing it in 597 BC, and talks about the new king of Judah being carried off to Babylon, the, uh, the beginning of the exile period, Nebuchadnezzar conquering uh, Jerusalem, taking them off, and folks like Daniel and so on. Here we do have archaeology from the conquest of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. This is this year, uh, 2019, Humon um, Gibson said this combination of the, an ashy layer full of artifacts that they've discovered mixed with arrowheads and some very special ornaments indicates some kind of devastation and destruction. Nobody abandons golden jewellery and nobody has arrowheads in their domestic refuse. <laughs> the arrowheads are uh, the type known to be used by the Babylonians. Uh, together, this evidence points to the historical conquest of the city by Babylon. Uh, 
So Daniel, here's the Babylonian Empire, the exilic period. Uh, Greek historians used to ascribe the buildings of Babylon um, to Queen uh, Shamu Ramat, a queen mother in Assyria, who had absolutely nothing to do with the building of Babylon, as far as we now know. But according to Daniel 4.30, uh, the building uh, projects of Babylon are attributed to, to uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, here he is, Nebuchadnezzar, walking on the palace of his roof and saying, Is not the great Babylon I have built by my mighty power to glorify my majesty and so on? And we, it's true to say that in, um, until about a century ago, it was commonly claimed that Nebuchadnezzar had never existed. He's just made up. But now we have various bits of archaeology from Babylon that mention King Nebuchadnezzar. Stones with his inscription on it saying, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who cares for uh, these various gods, eldest son of Nebopolsar, king of Babylon. It's like, you know, I built this place, I built the other place. Um, the cylinder of Nebuchadnezzar II um, describes three palaces that Nebuchadnezzar built for himself in Babylon. Um, it's a fairly recent find of a tiny little cuneiform script on a little bit of clay again, but it just mentions this guy Nebuchadnezzar, chief eunuch of Nebuchadnezzar II. And uh, this visiting professor at the British Museum was going through cataloguing various finds and he thought, well, that, that name seems a bit familiar. Came across uh, Nabu. Shurusha Erkin, and, and people in ancient days, again, like the spelling, it was a bit variable and you could spell people's names different ways and it's still with the same person. But here we have, described in a hand 2,500 years old, the chief eunuch of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It says, finding something like this tablet where we see a person mentioned in the Bible making an everyday payment to the temple in Babylon and quoting the exact date it's like, I made a donation to the temple on this date. Yeah. Uh, and it really kind of nails it down historically. Or again, uh, there's a whole record, the Babylonian records, about King Jehoiakim being in captivity and the food allowance that he was, was given uh, by the later king uh, uh, called Evil Meriduk. Um, and it's mentioned in the Bible, uh, the, the provisions from the king a regular ration given to him, a portion for each day in the days, all the days of his life. And here we have the Babylonian record of what those portions were. You know, so much olive oil every week and, and, and so on. To, to uh, 1.5 litres of sesame oil for Jehoiakim, king of Judah. 2.5 litres of sesame oil for the sons of the king of Judah. 4 litres of uh, sesame oil for the eight men of Judah, probably underlings and so on. Another little seal, Eliakim, the steward of Jehoiakim, mentioned in 2 Kings 19.2. Here we have his seal, the property of Eliakim, steward of Jehoiakim. Now you know the story of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego being thrown into the fire for not worshipping and bowing down to the golden statue and all of that. Now, look, there isn't any archaeology that proves that that happened. <laughs> we, we can't do that. But, but... Um, we do know, for example, that another earlier Babylonian monarch called uh, Rimsin used burning as a form of execution. We know that there were all these building projects going on and they used to make, and you'll probably see some of them in the museum, these uh, uh, glazed tiles that the Babylonians used that you would need very hot furnaces for. 
and so on. And evidently, there is a five-sided clay prism found in Babylon, now in the Istanbul Museum, that gives a list of various people. And three men listed on this prism, uh, their names have pronunciations that are very similar to the name of Daniel's three friends. Again, you can't prove that they're the same people, but the, the, you, you have three very similar names on this list is interesting and at least speaks to, again, the, the cultural background uh, of the story. Um, let's have a look here. So we've got uh, Aridu Nabu, official of the royal prince. This name is equivalent to the Aramaic name Abegnigo. Arid Nabu, Abegnigo, may in fact be the, the mention of one of Daniel's friends. Another name on the list is Hananu commander of the king's merchants. The name Hananu may be the Babylonian equivalent of the Hebrew name Hananiah. Hananu Hananiah. Another name found on the list is Meshalim Marduk. Marduk was a Babylonian god, uh, official to Nebuchadnezzar. Marduk, the name of the Babylonian god. If Marduk's left out of the name, we wind up with Meshalim, which may refer to Michel. Maybe. <laughs> Daniel in the lion's den, or Daniel in the lion's preserve. Culturally, we know, and this again, this is in the British Museum, you might be able to just make out a little clearer than on that Samson one, pictures of, of lions, his tail, his claws out, I'm a lion. Uh, the Babylonian and, and ancient Assyrian uh, monarchs, lion hunting was considered the sport of kings. You know, they didn't go and pay polo like royalty today, they went lion hunting to show how strong and manly they were. You know. Symbolic of ruling monarchs' duty to protect and fight for the people. So they kept the royal lion preserve so they could go out lion hunting. Like uh, ancient medieval kings would go out boar hunting in their local forest or whatever. Uh, so these sculpted reliefs illustrate the sporting exploits of the last great Assyrian king um, from about uh, the 600s BC from Nineveh. Uh, so wouldn't be surprising if the Babylonian king had a lion preserve and that's why he has some lions on tap. Uh, that he can throw someone into the lion cage, into the lion den for. Belshazzar, you know, Belshazzar's Feast, famous bit, the end of the Book of Daniel, famous bit of music called Belshazzar's Feast. Um, is it Walton wrote Belshazzar's Feast? And we get in Daniel 5.29, this is fascinating. Then at Belshazzar's command, he's like called the king, Belshazzar, Daniel having interpreted... Uh, this vision that he has. Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And people have wondered, why did the king bestow on Daniel the honour of being the third highest person in the kingdom? Why not the second highest person in the kingdom? Well, now we have archaeology that that fills out the background here and explains it. We've got this cylinder of uh, Nabodonus. King Nabodonus mentions his co-regent, sort of, I share the kingship, 
with Belshazzar, my firstborn son, the offspring of my heart. What evidently happened is that at some stage during his reign, King Nabonidus said, I want to go off and devote myself to worshipping the gods and the religious life off in this temple complex somewhere else. I'm going to leave the kingdom mostly in your hands, but I'm still king. Okay, my boy. But you're my co-regent. I'm not abdicating. We're going to share it. I'm going to go off and do this religious stuff because I think that's really important. You can do the running of the kingdom stuff because that's less important, right? And this uh, cuneiform uh, temple receipts from Sippa show Belshazzar presenting animals at the temple as an offering of the king uh, at, at the temple and so on. So it seems that there was this kind of co-regency which, which although Belshazzar was, in, for all intents and purposes, he was the king. He's the co-regent, and although his father's not really acting as king, officially speaking, he's number one. We're like, we're co-regents, but, you know, I'm the father, yeah? <laughs> uh, so, Belshazzar was officially speaking number two, so when he gives an honour to Daniel, he's only empowered to make him number three. And that's why. So this kind of biblical riddle of why number three, you know, doesn't explain that in the Bible, but from this extra biblical data, we're able to fill out the background of what's going on politically at the time and explain why that, that is uh, in the Bible, which is fascinating. <coughs> and then uh, the end of the Babylonian exile, uh, King Cyrus of Persia conquers uh, the Babylonians and institutes this policy of uh, releasing people back to the countries that they had been exiled from. Well, they, you know, it had been the Babylonian policy to kind of take the young men of Israel, indoctrinate them in the Babylonian educational system and use them as servants to run the kingdom. That's what Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and Daniel were, were doing in the court of the king. Uh, all that stuff at the beginning of Daniel that's really useful to look at when you're going off to university for the first time. Uh, and then at the end, after Belshazzar's feast, uh, and you get the prophets saying, you know, they the, the captivity won't last forever, and I'm raising up my, my anointed one, my Messiah, Cyrus, uh, who will initiate being able to come back from the exile. And here we have uh, a proclamation from King Cyrus, his propaganda, when he had taken over the Babylonian Empire, and here is his uh, uh, his words, his side of the story, uh, again, as prophesied in the Bible. Uh, I entered Babylon as a friend, oh yeah, and established my royal residence in the palace of the princes amid jubilation and rejoicing. These people were so happy to be conquered by me. Yeah? My numerous troops walked around Babylon in peace. Yeah, because they're numerous troops. <laughs> but he's just saying, I was welcomed with open arms by, you know, this is I popular acclaim. You know, everyone's really, really rejoicing that I, I took over. Uh, I also restored to the cities on the other side of the Tigris their hitherto long ruined temples. I let people rebuild their temples. Ring any bells. Uh, I also gathered up their one-time inhabitants and returned them to their homelands, which of course we, we see happening in the Bible 
at the end of the Exodus, which brings us... Yeah, the, the, sorry, yes, the exile, not the exodus, that's much earlier. Uh, which brings us to the end of the presentation. <laughs> so, um, uh, lots of pictures, lots of things, but you, you, get the, you get the general idea, the more recently we come, the more things and, and the more specific things we get relating to things in the Bible, uh, so that by the time we're kind of getting into the, the two kingdoms period, we get very specific stuff about so-and-so, so-and-so's servant at this time and this place, and here's his official seal and so on. We push back further into history, of course that's harder, but we can at least say the Bible has a sort of accurate knowledge of the kind of culture and customs and architecture and so on of the times, which fits much better the idea that these biblical books from earlier were written earlier or at least had access to sources of knowledge from earlier than the, the sort of minimalist theory that this was all made up during the, during the Babylonian exile uh, would hold. Yeah. Thanks so much, Pete. Uh, uh, you know, this is kind of a framework. It's not so much all the details at this moment, mm. but it's the framework, you know, to put it. And, you know, this timeline, the whole time, and I think it's so helpful to think when we are going to walk around with Beth Grove this afternoon mm. to actually ask ourselves, where on the timeline are we? Yeah. You know, because otherwise it's going to be difficult for us to <laughs> yeah. understand. And and what you have done, people have gathered so much material. It's really excellent. Um, I'll pass this round for you to have this timeline. You know, you have it, of course, on on the on the PowerPoint that you got, but still, it's very useful to have.